You're listening to the Tri-State Community Church Podcast, a ministry of the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church located in the greater Pittsburgh metropolitan area. For more information, including service times, please visit us at facebook.com forward slash Tri-State Reformed Church. I invite you to return to John's Gospel to John chapter 7. We'll begin reading with verse 53 this morning verse 53, and we'll read through chapter 8, verse 11. John 7, 53 through 8, 11. John 7, verse 53, they went each to his own house, chapter 8, verse 1, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. Once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. When they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. And Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go and, from, uh, go and from now on sin no more. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for this reading. We thank you, O Father, for your grace. We thank you, O Father, for your word. And, O Lord, we pray that you would instruct us this morning. We pray, O Father, you would teach us this morning. We pray, O Father, that you would indeed lift our hearts, O Father, into your presence and bring your presence before our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen. Well, this morning's reading presents itself with a number of challenges, and I would say I will tell you that uh, preparing for this morning wasn't like preparing one sermon. It was like preparing two, because normally before you start, you don't have to consider whether the text that you're reading uh, from is really part of John's gospel or not. Uh, this uh, particular text that we come to, many of you, if you have an ESV out, you'll notice there's not one set of brackets, but there's two set of brackets between 753 and 811 with a footnote that says something to the effect that the earliest manuscripts do not include 753 through 811. If you're reading from a King James translation, you don't have any of this. It just continues, at least most, uh, I, I, I'm pretty sure most uh, editions would just um, continue through. If you have an NIV, if memory serves me correctly, there's just a line across. After 752, there's a straight line across, and then there's another line between 811 and 812, and there's a footnote that says something to the effect that the earliest manuscripts do not contain uh, this verse. And if you look down at the, the ESV, uh, if you have one in front of you, there's a footnote that will even go further and say that some manuscripts, in other words, the ancient manuscripts that have this text, 
sometimes inserted after 736 or after 2125. And we could add to that, there are some manuscripts that inserted after verse 44 of chapter 7. So in other words, some of the manuscripts that contain this uh, actually have it in different places. Some manuscripts have it in Luke's gospel uh, in Luke 21, after Luke 21, 38. And there are many scholars that say that this particular text actually sounds more like Luke's gospel than it does John's gospel. So I'm sharing all this with you because you have it most likely right in front of you. Um, if you have study Bibles, there'll be some ink spilled on this particular uh, subject. And um, as many of you are well aware, uh, our English Bibles are uh, put together uh, f- from uh, Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek texts. And uh, we can rest confidently, very confidently, that what we are reading is indeed the Word of God because we have so much evidence from antiquity. It's, it's, it's enormous. We have thousands and thousands of either manuscripts or uh, fragments or uh, uh, partial manuscripts, if you will, codices. We have, uh, we have a, a, a whole plethora of these uh, in the Greek and in the uh, Aramaic and in the Hebrew tongues, uh, not to mention all of the ancient translations of these that we have attesting to uh, the, um, uh, the authenticity of Scripture. And our Scriptures, our Bibles, they often will have little footnotes whenever there's deviation from the text. We'll have a little footnote. You'll look at the bottom and it'll explain something like some manuscripts say this or uh, some manuscripts or Syriac or Coptic, it's, some of this say that and and um, as you uh, plow along, the translators aren't hiding any of this. Uh, there are occasions where there are uh, some difficulty with the text. Let me say this right from the start, that if you just go through the margins of, say, the ESV, and you just look at the places where we have these, you'll discover that these um, variations do not compromise one single Christian doctrine. They just simply don't. Most of, a lot of times, skeptics will, will uh, you know, say, well, you can't trust the Bible because there's 300,000 errors in it. And um, how they arrive at these numbers, I don't know. But they have to be ar- arriving at it by taking into consideration spelling. And um, all of us ought to be aware that as time goes by, words are spelt differently. Has anyone ever read Old English? I mean, like F's look like S's and uh, like some of the spell. You know, I actually spell like I'm spelling Old English half of the time. Uh, I am a very poor speller. Sometimes I'm embarrassed to write things out. I'm like, how does this go? I get things backwards. Uh, uh, very, very poor speller. But words change over time. And many of those errors that they point at are simply spelling differences. Um, We can have very good confidence. We can have perfect confidence that what we have here is the Word of God. But the particular text we come to this morning actually presents us with a bit of a conundrum. One of the reasons is that there is, there really is a lot of manuscript discrepancy on this. And 
As J.C. Ryle pointed out more than 100 years ago, there are great Bible interpreters who we should pay attention to who would find themselves on both sides of this aisle. For example, Richard Baxter was a person who, from what I understand, didn't believe that this text was part of John's gospel. Now, he's a giant uh, in biblical interpretation and faithfulness to God's Word. Uh, We could find a whole host of others who believe this to be part of John's gospel. So it's, it's, (laughs) it's not easy at all. Now, I... Before we do anything with this, I I just want to share some of the manuscript evidence. I don't want to get all technical, and I don't want to bore you with all of this, but let me just take you through just a a little bit of the problem. In terms of manuscript evidence, this text is absent from a number of major Greek manuscripts that bear some of the strongest witness to John's gospel. It is absent from many of those. Uh, The Byzantine text, that would be the text in the East, do not show it. It doesn't show up in them until about the 9th century. And even in the 9th century, there are uh, footnotes to it stating and calling into question its authenticity. It's missing from many ancient commentaries and lectionaries. And um, again, as I've pointed out, some ancient manuscripts have it appearing in different places, which would be a call for concern when it shows up in different places. Now, all of that having been said, we find it to be quite alive and well in the West, uh, meaning in the Latin churches, if you will. It appears in the writings of Ambrose, Ambrosiaster, and Augustine. It appears in them, and these are men who, uh, these are, uh, Ambrose died in 397, Ambrosiaster died in 350, Augustine dies in 450. So they're commenting on the text. They're aware of the text. Jerome found it in many Greek and Latin codices. A codice is simply a book, if you will. It's like a book. You know, you know the real ancient manuscripts were scrolls. You know, you, you know, Jesus steps into the temple in Nazareth, in the synagogue in Nazareth, if you will, and he, he's handed a scroll of Isaiah. Uh, codices are like our books where the information is put in a book form, um, Jerome found it in many Greek and Latin codices. Therefore, it makes its way into the Latin, Vul- the Latin Vulgate, the Latin text. And from there, it's uh, brought into the Western canon. Canon is simply a word for standard, if you will. It's brought into the standard of Scripture. And um, the ancient historian Eusebius uh, actually reports that he learned the story from Papias. And Papias was a disciple of John himself. So... Uh, regardless of whether we believe the story is to be part of John's gospel or not, uh, I think we got very good reason to believe that the story actually happened, uh, that Jesus really did. He really uh, uh, did meet with this woman. This event took place. Uh, D.A. Carson, for example, who's an outstanding New Testament scholar, does not believe that this text is part of John's gospel. However, he says that we have every reason to believe that it happened, that it took place. Now, all of this to say, I'll give you my personal position on it, but I wouldn't give you my personal position without stating, listen, I'm really in a minority here uh, with my own position. Uh, Today, most modern scholarship says, no, this is not part of John's gospel. Uh, I take a minority position on it. Uh, I believe that we've got reason to to believe that it is uh, part of John's gospel. And I want you to know that I'm taking a minority position. 
and I want you to be aware of the problems uh, with it. And my particular position could be stated quite well uh, by John Calvin. I bring Calvin's commentary into the pulpit this morning, and and, uh, this particular commentary is a special place in my heart for a number of reasons. Uh, Calvin happens to be one of my favorite theologians and pastors and teachers. But also, um, every time I open these books, I think about how I arrived at these books. This is the first commentary set that I ever bought. And I, I got this phone call one time very early. I Really, the family, I was just really starting to believe the Lord was calling me into gospel ministry. And I got a phone call. My Uncle Bill had passed away, and I got a phone call from my Aunt Mary, and she was asking me if I'd be interested in doing his funeral. And you want to talk about butterflies coming into your stomach upon that phone call. I remember, I remember it like it was yesterday. I remember getting like, well, if someone's asking you to do this, you've got to take this really seriously. But I can remember being so scared. I remember being, and I said to her, I said, you know, I'm going to have to talk to my pastor and see if this is even really, if I can even really do this. And, and uh, in many ways, I was almost thinking, well, maybe he'll tell me no, you know. And uh, my pastor at the time said, you know, there's no reason you can't do this. Uh, uh, I'm rooting for you. You can do it. And even gave me some pointers on how to even get started. And long story short, I did it. It was the first funeral I ever did. And um, after the funeral, my Aunt Mary came to me with a check. My Aunt Mary was not my Uncle Bill's wife, but she took care of my Uncle Bill and my Uncle Tom uh, she was married to one of uh, my other uncles, and uh, she handed me this check, and she said, here, take this check, and I don't want a check from my Aunt Mary for doing a funeral for my Uncle Bill. I said, I can't take this. She goes, no, 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 this was part of, um, th- this was part of his estate. This was, this was designated for that purpose. Uh, you take this. And I'm like, well, I'll tell you what, I'll, I'll take it, and I'll invest it in the ministry. And I used that check and bought this commentary, so... That's how I got it, and it's been so useful. Listen to what Calvin says. He's commenting on this particular text that we come to this morning. And then this goes to show this text has been disputed for a long, 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 long time. And Calvin says, it is plain enough that this passage was unknown anciently to the Greek churches. He's pointing to the east, to the Greek churches. And some conjecture that it has been brought from some other place and inserted here. But as it has always been received by the Latin churches and is found in many old Greek manuscripts and contains nothing unworthy of an apostolic spirit, there is no reason why we should refuse to apply it to our advantage. Um, I'm so thankful for that comment. Um, And to this comment, I want to add this. How do we know at the end of the day that our Bibles are the Word of God or not? Did somebody come to us with great salesmanship and argue us in? Did somebody come with a mountain of evidence and by way of the evidence, uh, um, you know, talk us into this? The Westminster Confession of Faith answers this question so perfectly that it is the ministry of the Holy Spirit opening up our eyes. It is the ministry of the Holy Spirit bearing witness to our spirit that this is the Word of God. At the end of the day, 
when you talk with people about the Word of God, and if you're talking to somebody who says, you know, I'm kind of on the fence about it. I don't know. How can we know that's really the Bible? They're never going to come to a saving conviction that this is the Word of God until the Holy Spirit implants that in their hearts. That's why prayer is so vital. Prayer is so crucial to any evangelism that you're going to do. It's crucial. If you, this morning, believe that this is the Bible, not necessarily this particular text, it's disputed, but the rest of John's gospel, and Matthew, and Mark, and Luke, and the rest of the 66 books we have, if you believe that, really, truly, it's only because God has touched your heart and opened up your heart and given you the eyes to Jesus talks about, you know, those eyes to see and those ears uh, to hear. I have to say, and this is subjective, but I have to say that, you know, I have been really blessed by this particular passage of Scripture, and I'm going to open it up. That's the first sermon. I've preached one sermon. Now we got one more to go. Um, I will let you decide. Please, uh, you have to make up your minds what you think about this text. But um, ask yourself this question. Uh, there is admittedly nothing in this that is contrary uh, to the truth that is taught elsewhere in the Bible. And you ask yourself, as I do my best to open this passage of Scripture, if you think the Holy Spirit's speaking in it or not. Um, I am of the conviction, I take the conviction of J.C. Rowell, the conviction of A.W. Pink, the conviction of um, uh, uh, Hendrickson and many others that this is indeed the Word of God and it should be preached, but only after these difficulties are shared. So... Um, let's start. Verse 53. We're starting, actually, with the last verse of chapter 7. There we're told they each went to his own house. I take this to mean that uh, the officers and the Pharisees who have been meeting uh, have gone to their homes as well as the people uh, in the uh, temple have gone to their homes. Everyone has gone back to their house uh, after the days of events. And uh, in verse 1, uh, we read, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. And it's an interesting thing that we have there. Everyone goes back to their house. Because everyone else has a house to go back to. Foxes have holes. Birds of air have nests. But the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head, does he? And we can only conjecture as to where Jesus went. Did Jesus go back to the Garden of Gethsemane and sleep in the open air? That's possible. Or did he go to Mary, Martha, and Lazarus' house in Bethany? Uh, it would be in this direction. Could be described this very way. And did he stay with them, as he often did? That's possible as well. One thing we know for sure is Jesus never owned a house during his earthly ministry. And though he was rich... He became poor for our sakes, didn't he? Even though he owns every house on the planet, he never took that civil ownership, if you will, or personal ownership um, of a house during his earthly ministry. Is that amazing? Is that amazing? So Jesus goes back to the Mount of Olives Verse 2, early in the morning, he came again to the temple. What a lesson we have here. It's often pointed out that uh, here, uh, you know, this, this really, application of this really is this is how we should really begin every day, is uh, begin it with uh, time. We should design our lives to such a way 
that we're not getting up at the last minute and rushing off to the workplace, but know that we design our lives by going to bed early enough and getting up that where we can spend our first waking hours with the Lord. Uh, early in the morning here, we see uh, Jesus uh, comes again to the temple. Uh, what's interesting is oftentimes people say, looky here, there's people coming. They're coming to meet with the Lord um, first thing in the morning. And the application of that is we should begin our day uh, seeking God in the morning. But I want to show you another side to this. Because when we see Jesus rising early and coming to the temple, what do we learn from there? We learn that the Lord is ready, and we learn that the Lord is, is eager to meet us first thing in the morning, isn't he? And to me, that's the better thing to preach, because what, what would motivate us more the, the, the charge or indictment that we should be up early meeting with the Lord and it should be our duty, or the simple truth that the Lord is ready and prepared to meet with us. Now, I think the latter is the one that motivates us much more to get up. The Lord is up. There he is, off to the temple. What do you suppose he's going to teach? No doubt he's going to teach the coming of the kingdom. He's going to teach the gospel. He's going to teach and preach salvation. Salvation to everyone who is willing to come for the taking simply by faith. And here we're told all the people came to him. And notice the posture. It's important to this story that we notice this little detail. He sat down and taught them. He sat down and taught them. Uh, we do the opposite. Um, everyone sits down and the speaker stands up. Uh, I don't know, you know, this week I wanted to look at, a couple of times I thought about this, but it was always at night, in the middle of the night, I wake up in the middle of the night and I'm thinking about this and, and it really wasn't the time I was going to go rooting around on the internet to try to find out what time and what point in history did this change. The ancients, this was a common thing. The teacher sat down, everybody else stood up. Uh, I don't know, um, I never did uh, look into the history of that, I can only assume that it's easier for you to see if you're all, imagine if everyone was standing up, um, especially if we had some of the tall folks, you know, uh, here in front, you wouldn't be able to see. We'd be like Zacchaeus looking for a tree uh, so that we could see the Lord. I think it's easier to do what we're doing now than to try to find a tree. Will you agree? Um, I don't know. But what's all kidding aside, what's important here is to see that the Lord is seated and he's teaching them. Now, hold on to that. Now, in verse 3, the scribes and the Pharisees bring a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So here, uh, the lesson is interrupted with this uh, intrusion. They're bringing in this woman. And they say, Lord, she's been guilty. She's been caught of adultery. You know the law of Moses. He says that women like this should be stoned. They should be executed. What do you say? And we, our modern ears, can, can read this, and they, they, they can be shocked. Um, we live in a time where, you know, you know people, our, our culture plays really fast and loose. Um, Sexual immorality in the scriptures is not a small, insignificant thing. 
Over and over again throughout the scriptures, we see sexual immorality as a sin that is especially heinous to the Father, especially heinous to the Son, especially heinous to the Holy Spirit. Uh, And in the law of Moses, it was indeed a capital offense. If you were caught, it was a capital crime. And we can think to ourselves, my goodness, how, I mean, how is that? But again, I'm, I want to, I want to read a text again from Calvin this morning that really helps us to begin to understand not only the heinousness of it, uh, the significance of it, but also the effects of adultery. Notice what Calvin says. Now, Calvin's writing, I don't remember when exactly he did his harmony and his work on John, but this is, this is like 1500s, uh, or probably towards the middle of the 1500s. And Calvin writes, Indeed, there will be no crime whatever that shall not be exempted from the penalties of law if adultery be not punished. For then the door will be thrown open for any kind of treachery and for poisoning and murder and robbery. Besides, the adulteress, when she bears an unlawful child, not only robs the name of the family, but violently takes away the right of inheritance. Do you follow that? Imagine if we were all farmers and we have the family farm. Think about the implications. What's this do to the inheritance? What does this do to the family? Besides, the adulteress, when she bears an unlawful child, not only robs the name of the family, but violently takes away the right of the inheritance from the lawful offspring and conveys it to strangers. But what is worst of all, the wife not only dishonors the husband to whom she has been united, but prostitutes herself to shameful wickedness and likewise violates the sacred covenant of God. Now we're really getting into the most significant thing here. She violates the sacred covenant of God without without which no holiness can continue to exist in the world, end of quote. Now, if we think of the seventh commandment, the commandment thou shalt not commit adultery, we can understand that it's a covenant-breaking, it's a covenant-breaking offense, isn't it? You know, you know, those of us in the room this morning are married, we, we, we have this thing on our fingers, don't we? What is it? This uh, ring. It's a sign of a covenant that we have made with our spouse, isn't it? With this ring, I thee wed. And uh, adultery is a violation of this covenant. But we could even extend from that. It's, it's also a trespass against as unbelievers, it's a trespass against the covenant of works, for an unbeliever is in a covenant of works. An unbeliever says, oftentimes, I think at the end of my life, you know, when the bad things are placed with the good, I think I'll balance the scale out, and you say that kind of nonsense. What is, what is the unbeliever confessing? He's confessing he or she to be in a covenant of works. When we become believers... We enter into a covenant of grace. We understand there's nothing we bring to this covenant. We're going to see from this story. There's nothing we can bring to this covenant, nothing. We stand before the Lord and before his mercy and nothing else. But think about the assault of adultery on the covenant of grace. And with this assault, think about holiness. We're called to holy living. 
So many people's idea of Jesus is he's an insurance policy against the flames of hell. Yeah, I got Jesus, you know, and uh, yeah, I believe in Jesus, and they pay lip service. This is just lip service to Jesus. And it's somehow they're going to escape eternal perdition. But Jesus doesn't save anybody he can't command. J.C. Ryle said that very powerfully 100 years ago. If Jesus isn't commanding you, if your life isn't, you're not following him, if he's not the principle of your life and you're not pursuing hard after him, you have no reason to believe you're in a state of grace with him. Because where does assurance come from? It comes from that very thing. I've had people say to me over and over again, well, I know if I die, I just know I'm going to be going to heaven. How do you know that? How do you know that? How can we know that? We can only know that as we understand the fruit of the Holy Spirit um, working in our lives in a transformed life. That's why when, when we fall off to the left or we fall off to the right and we begin to backslide, what is the first thing that goes in our lives? It's assurance of salvation. That's the first thing that goes. That is the conscious working, telling us something's wrong. Now, back to this text. These guys don't care about this woman. I don't think they care much about this woman. No, um, I don't think they really care. I mean, here they are. They're interrupting Jesus' talk uh, with her. They're dragging her before the, the people. In verse 6, we don't, have to, we don't have to guess where they're at. Verse 6 tells us where they're at. They're doing this, verse 6, to test Jesus that they might have some charge to bring against him. The NIV uses the word trap. And that's where I got the first word in the title of this morning's message, entrapment. They are trying to trap Jesus. Now I might ask, why are they bringing her in here? Why are they doing all this? Because here's how they're reasoning. We got him. We got him. Here's this woman. Someone's probably brought them to uh, chief priests and said, listen, here, she's been caught in adultery. And they're like, you know what? The light bulb goes off. We got him. Jesus claims to be a friend of sinners. He claims to be merciful. He claims to be, uh, he didn't come into the world to, to condemn the world. He came into the world to save the world. All right, let's parade her in front. Let's crash his, his teaching party with this woman, and let's hit him with a question. This woman has committed adultery. You know the law of Moses. The law of Moses said that she should be condemned to death. What do you say? And they think they have Jesus in checkmate. Why? Well, think about his options. In their minds, he only has two options. He says yes or no. If, he's, if he says yes, she should be condemned to death, well, then he's upholding the justice of God, right? He's upholding the law. He's upholding the holiness of God. But what about the mercy that he's claiming to come in? If he says no, well, then, okay, he's fine on the mercy side of the scales, but he's no friend of the holiness of God. He's no friend of the law. He's no friend of Moses. And they think they got him. That's the only two options that they can possibly see. And how does Jesus react? We're told in verse 6 in the middle that Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. So much ink has been spilled on that. I read so many explanations this week of that, that, that like, what is he writing? 
You know, you want to know, why is he writing? What is he, what is he writing? Is he just doodling? Is he writing words? Is he writing sentences? A traditional interpretation of this is that Jesus is quoting from John or Jeremiah 17, verse 13. Um, you don't have to turn there. I can read it for you really quick. There's a, a section in the verse that suggests this. Uh, Jeremiah 17, verse 13. O Lord, the hope of Israel, all f- who forsake you shall be put to shame. Those who turn away from you shall be written in the earth. And the idea of written in the earth, okay, maybe he's writing their names. Maybe he's writing the sins that they've committed. Uh, Maybe he's just doodling. The fact is the text doesn't tell us. One preacher said he's writing the Ten Commandments because the Lord wrote the Ten Commandments on uh, tablets of stone with his finger. The fact is, we don't know what he's writing. The text doesn't tell us what he's writing. And one thing that I've learned many, many years ago is to keep the plain things the main things. What is the plain thing? The plain thing is he's looking down and he's doodling. He's he's writing. He's looking down. He's got his finger uh, in the ground. Um, I'll tell you what I think is going on here because many of us have done this. They're barging in the middle of his teaching. And he will not give them his immediate attention. I mean, it had to have frustrated them. He's acting like they're not even talking, isn't he? And what do they do? I mean, fellas, you guys know what the silent treatment is, don't you? You ever had the silent treatment? Yeah. Did you enjoy that? No. (laughs) These guys are getting the silent treatment. And what do we often do when we're getting the silent treatment? We run our yappers. What's wrong? What's wrong? What's wrong? Come on, tell me. What's wrong? What's wrong? What is it? What? They continue to question him. They continue to question him in verse 7. And then in, in verse 7, he stood up. Remember, I asked you to hold on to the fact that he's sitting down. As he's sitting down, he's teaching. They come in, and they barge in with this woman, and they create this commotion, and they stop the teaching. And he's been remaining sitting all this time, and he's noodling for a period of time. How long? We don't know. But I think it's long enough for them to realize they're getting the silent treatment. And then all at once, he stands up. Uh-oh. He just stood up. And he said, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And then he sat back down once more and wrote on the ground. What is he saying? That's the famous verse out of this text, isn't it? How many times have you heard that quoted in our culture? Him without sin cast the first stone. How many times have you heard that? How many times have you said it? It's been woven into the warp and woof of our culture. This text, it's not even part of John's gospel, so many tell us. What is he saying? Is he saying that we can't judge sin, that we can't 
we can't bring accusations and we can't prosecute sin until we're walking in sinless perfection? No, that can't be what he's saying because that, the rest of Scripture, if we take that interpretation, it will not stand under the scrutiny of the rest of the teaching of Scripture. That's not what he's saying. What is he saying? I have a couple of thoughts in my notes here. One is that he's, he's speaking. If we look at the context here, he's speaking to those who would bring a charge to a person while they themselves are much guiltier than the person being charged. What are they doing? They have a woman who's been caught in adultery. Uh, the, the law of Moses called for capital punishment to be enacted. Now, they wouldn't have had the power to carry it out because they're under Roman rule, and they didn't have the power to carry out a capital punishment, a capital crime. They could have done it in secret. I understand from antiquity sometimes this would happen in secret, but it would be unlawful to do so according to Roman law. Uh, but here they have this woman, and indeed she's guilty. The text everywhere doesn't, um, she's guilty. She did it. Indeed, she has committed adultery. No question. But what are these guys doing? They have just interrupted Jesus while he is preaching the gospel to lost souls so that they could entrap him with the expressed intention of discrediting him. Is that a small thing? Is that a small thing? And the, the application of this is enormous. Is it a small thing to discredit Jesus in any shape, way, or form? And furthermore, you notice in our story that only a woman is brought in. Some of us might be thinking, well, where's, the, where's he at? Where's the fella? Because adultery isn't a solo project. I read one commentator and said perhaps he was more fleeting on foot. That was D.A. Carson that said that. And I think he was being, I think he was joking. In other words, perhaps he got away. He had good reason to run. I, I don't think D.A. Carson really believes that's the reason. It is a possibility. But there's hypocrisy going on here. I don't think it would be a stretch at all, though the text doesn't tell us, but I don't think it would be a stretch at all to say that many of these men who are accusing this women have committed adultery themselves because Jesus spoke about it, and the New Testament spoke about it so many times. But here's the thing. It was somewhat excused when men did it, but it was completely unpardonable when women did it. I, you know, even in my own generation growing up, I can remember where it was kind of understood that it's not such a bad crime for guys to get involved in, but it's really a bad thing for women to get involved in. Actually, it's a really bad thing for everybody to get involved in. And there's very good chance that these fellas had probably committed adultery many, many times. 
But what we do know is they're trying to entrap Jesus. And here they are, more guilty of crime. They're committing a crime that's greater than the crime that the woman has committed. So Jesus says to them, let him who is without sin cast the first stone. I think a second way this speaks is to the, the officious. That's not a word we use very often, officious. What does officious mean? Officious is like the enthusiastic tattletale we grew up with in school. Do you remember him or her? The enthusiastic tattletale? They catch you doing something, they can't wait to make a bunch of noise about it to get you in trouble. We, we've had to go to school with those folks. Hopefully, we've never been one of those folks. It's always the other guy, right? We've had to, we've had to endure that. And some, some of us have had to actually work with people like that. Or maybe currently we're working with people like that now. I think this would speak to that person as well, the uh, officious. But back to our story. Jesus is now back down, not giving them the time of days, writing on the ground. He's told them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone. And in verse 9, when they heard it, they went away one by one beginning with the older ones. The older ones are wiser, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Oh, you're going to entrap Jesus, are you? How'd that go? That was an embarrassing exercise, wasn't it? Um, so they're gone. But notice the woman doesn't leave in verse 8. The woman is standing before him. And in verse 9, now mind you, the audience is still there. The audience is still there. All the people who were listening to Jesus teach are still there. They've never gone anywhere. The, the, the whole idea was to discredit Jesus publicly before them. In verse 10, Jesus stands up and he says to her, women, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And notice what she says in verse 11. She says, no one, Lord. Now, what do we have here? We have here a situation where a guilty sinner is standing before a holy and just God. And she has no works to call upon. She has nothing that she can call upon. She is literally at the mercy of Jesus. What becomes of her right now is completely up to Jesus. What does she deserve? She deserves to be terminated. Here she is before her judge. She refers to him as Lord. And then Jesus says to her, neither do I condemn you. I've entitled this sermon, Entrapped with the Gospel. Why would, I, why would I call it that? Because they're trying to entrap Jesus. But notice what they're trying to entrap Jesus with. They're trying to entrap Jesus with the gospel. They can't, and nor could any other human being, understand this. How can a merciful and just God acquit sinners. 
He's going to have to do one or the other. He's going to either have to condemn her or he's he's going to have to compromise his justice and let her go. They think they have him checkmated with this. But what they don't understand is the gospel. They don't know the gospel. These religious leaders, they're around all over the place. We have them today just like we've had them in every generation. They have no clue. They wouldn't know the gospel if it hit them in the head. And because they don't know the gospel, they think they have Jesus in checkmate. And now here's this woman right in front of Jesus, right before his mercy, right before a holy and just God who has to condemn sin. He has to punish sin. But he's also a merciful God, full of chesed love, as we sang earlier. And what does he do? He says to her, has anyone condemned you? No, Lord. Neither do I condemn you. And how can he make that possible? Because this act of adultery is not getting forgotten Jesus will go, and he will take the penalty of that adultery so that she doesn't have to. Now, let's turn our attention away from this woman, and let's ask ourselves this question this morning. Have you ever found yourself standing in the shoes of this adulterous woman? Because if you haven't, if the answer is no, you haven't come to Jesus yet. Because this is the only way we come. Now, someone would say, I've never committed adultery. Oh, really? Oh, really? Our intoxication with the world is described as spiritual adultery. That's why I read from Matthew 12. Jesus referred to that generation as an adulterous generation. How would he refer to ours? We have prostituted ourselves with the things of this world on such a regular basis to such an extreme that we've loved the things of the world more than we've loved our Heavenly Father who has given us these things. We are an adulterous people. And what do we have to say for ourselves? What do we have to say? When everything that's good in our lives has come from his gracious hand, what do we have to say for our rebellion towards him? There's nothing we can say. We are this woman standing right before the Lord. Have you ever seen yourself there? Can you see yourself there? Can you see yourself standing before Jesus? Can you see yourself standing before him? What words do we want to hear? The words we want to hear is, I don't condemn you either, or I don't condemn you. There's only one way that Jesus can get by without condemning us. And just just as he took this adultery upon himself, he also has to take our adultery upon himself. This gets rid of, it gets rid of any idea that we could add anything to the gospel. This gets rid of any idea that we could add uh, some good work or some anything to the gospel. It It gets rid of any notion. The only way we can come to Jesus is to come to Jesus the way this woman comes to Jesus and stand before him and cast ourselves down upon his mercy. Have you done that? 
Heavenly Father, O Lord, we thank you for this text, O Lord. We thank you, O Father. What we see is a very powerful lesson of how these, these lost religious people, these lost religious leaders, attempted to entrap you with the very trappings of the gospel itself. They were completely ignorant of the gospel and not knowing the gospel, not knowing you, not, nor knowing God. They had the exterior of people who were supposed to be holy and all-knowing. They had the exterior of people who were pure and righteous and religious, but the interior of, of uh, a person who is completely lost. And they attempt to entrap you. And in doing so, Lord, you give us a great lesson on the gospel itself. Oh, Father, I pray that you will help all of us to see ourselves standing where this woman is standing as spiritual prostitutes, for lack of a better word, as spiritual adulterers. We have loved the things that you've given us more than we have loved you. And we confess this before you, oh, Father. We confess this, and we take that merciful hand, and we recognize that there is nothing that we can bring to add to it. All we can do is prostrate ourselves before you and say, Father, forgive us. Father, forgive me. Father, give me that salvation that Christ Jesus has come to merit and accomplish. And it is only upon his merits and accomplishments that we can be cleansed and set free. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I invite you to stand as we sing our concluding song.
Heavenly, oh, Heavenly Father, we so thank you and praise you for the gospel, for the good news of Christ Jesus, for the good news that he has come to save souls. He's come to save sinners like us who uh, share the same problem as this uh, woman that we've read about in our story, how she um, has committed this act of adultery. And, oh, Father, we recognize that we may have not committed the act of adultery in terms of physically, Father, nevertheless, we've all done it spiritually, and we've become adulteresses and adulterers before you. And, oh, Father, we thank you that we can have forgiveness for this. We thank you that, Father, in Christ Jesus, we can be forgiven. And we thank you, Lord, for this snapshot that we have of really um, in standing before you, we see this woman. And, Father, the message here for us, Lord, is do we see ourselves standing before you? with nothing, nothing upon which we can point to, nothing of which upon we can justify our actions. But all we can do is stand before you and, and just look to you for your mercy and call on you for your mercy and forgiveness. Oh, Father, bring each of us to that place. And Father, for those of us, we've been there, we know. Father, press this upon our hearts afresh this morning that, Father, you, you would completely re-motivate us, O Lord, to follow you. For who wouldn't want to follow such a merciful king and judge as you, who, in order to acquit us, would take the penalty of our sins for us? Well, Father, we thank you in Jesus' name. And as we go forth from this place, well, Father, may the love and the mercy and the fellowship of the triune God be upon us now and forevermore. Amen.